Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, If you have your Bibles this morning, take them out, your apps. I'm starting a series, a summer series this morning on the book of Nehemiah, uh, God's fulfillment of a promise. But I want you to turn to in your Bibles to the book of Ezra this morning. So uh, I'll explain that in just a little bit. But I love, this is going to kind of be our summer series. We're kind of walk through this book. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. I love the story of, of Nehemiah. Okay, so just a few things to know up front about about this book as we kind of journey through it. So some things to know. Number one, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book, okay? Later on, they separated them. That's why I'm going to start in Ezra because it dots some of the I's and crosses some of the T's in Nehemiah when you kind of get they were one consistent narrative until somebody years ago said, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't I split this book up, okay? So, uh, so they were originally written as one, one book. It was written also about 430 years before Christ. So if you're a history kind of chronology person, about, you know, four or 500 years before Christ. Uh, Also, Ezra and Nehemiah follow the book of Daniel chronologically. So that may blow some of your minds as you're thinking through the Old Testament because it's Ezra and Nehemiah, then way on over is Daniel. But really historically, chronologically, Daniel immediately precedes Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll talk about that uh, this, this morning. So the backstory to Nehemiah and Ezra is this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he invades Israel in about 600 BC, okay? He invades Israel. If you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see the wickedness and the evil that has occurred in Israel and Judah at that particular time, and there's a judgment of the Lord that comes upon that whole, those holy nations, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they come in and they take over Israel. Now, when he comes into Israel and Jerusalem, he destroys the Temple of Solomon. Remember the great Temple of Solomon, the the glory of God. If you've been to Jerusalem, you remember the, 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 the area of the Temple of Solomon. He destroys the temple. He takes out all of the religious artifacts. He destroys the Holy of Holies. You know, he takes away the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Now, I'm just going to be honest, I, I had no idea, it was really later in my adult life that I, you know, was concerned about the Ark of the Covenant, and it was because I watched the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, it's not very spiritual, 
But when Indiana Jones is explaining that during this invasion, the ark, you know, the ark had disappeared and it's never been reported or seen again since, that got my attention. Unfortunately, when the movie was over, I got my Bible and I began to, to research this. So if you are an Ark of the Covenant theorist and you have a theory, let's talk after church. I, you know, is it still around where it is? I think it still is, but I'm not going there. So he destroys the Temple of Solomon, this beautiful temple. It lays stone on stone. Religious artifacts are gone. A Holy of Holies is destroyed. Ark of the Covenant is gone. Now, when he does this, he transports over 100,000 people, 800 miles to Babylon to live in slavery, or the biblical term is exile. Because back in that time when you won, you know, you won a war, you weren't necessarily an occupying force. Man, you took that population, you stripped the land, you took the population, they came back with you, and they lived as your forced slaves, okay? So uh, Nebuchadnezzar took most of everyone that was living in Israel, marched them 800 miles, and they lived in Babylon. The Israelites were in exile in Babylon for 70 years, 70 years, this, these 100,000 or more lived in Babylon, all right? This is where you see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appear. They are living in this exile of Babylon that has occurred under, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. That's why I'm saying the history is a little flipped as far as how the Old Testament is laid out. So, for 70 years, the people of God are living in godless Babylon, Godless Babylon. They are hopeless. Who knows how long this servitude is going to last. The only thing they know and remember is the last recorded exile or, or forced servitude came from the Hebrews and the Egyptians that lasted over 430 years. That had to be depressing and hopeless to them that who knows how long we're going to be living as slaves and we're going to be living, living in Babylon. Well, that hopelessness would be tempered. And, and the, the title of my series, uh, uh, the title of my series is God's Fulfillment of a Promise because all of Ezra and all of Nehemiah sit upon a promise that God made to the Hebrews at this particular time. So I want to take a moment and I want to talk about the promise. So in the midst of this present situation, God made a promise to the Israelites about the exile that they are presently living in on three different occasions, 150 years before this occurred. Okay, you got it? There was a promise that God gave even before most of these were even born about the situation that they were living in. So I want to read you the first promise. It's written 150 years before this occasion, before most of these people had ever lived. Okay, it's out of Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, the, almost the entire chapter, deals with this promise. I'm only going to pull one verse. Are you ready? Here's the promise. I will raise up Cyrus, remember that word, in my righteousness. 
I will make all of his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. The entire chapter is almost about this promise that God's going to set them free. But that's one, one time, but the name of Cyrus is specifically mentioned. 100 years before this was written, Jeremiah the prophet wrote a promise, okay? And here's what, it, here's what it says, Jeremiah 25, 8. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, because you've not listened to my words, and this isn't the part of the promise that they like, okay? I will summon all the people of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, okay? It's hard to just stumble along. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's not a common word. So it's very specific in its promise, in its prophetic tone, I will summon all the people of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, declares the Lord. I will bring them against this land, its, inher its inhabitants, against all of the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland. These countries will serve the king of Babylon. Here is kind of the promise here for 70 years. But when 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their for their guilt. Now, let me just say, too, if you are into biblical apologetics, this is an unbelievable prophetic, you know, historical thing that, that this entire historical event was prophesied 100, 150 years before. And it's not just general. It names names and it gives dates. Okay? So, just want to mention that. So, let's talk about the promise of the Lord. The promise of the Lord. God's promises are obligations that he puts upon himself. God's promises are obligations, excuse me, that he puts upon himself. So God is obligating himself because he says, Isaiah, Isaiah 45, if you'll read that entire chapter, who he's going to raise up, how long this is going to last, and what the mission of Cyrus is going to be. God obligates himself long before this, this situation ever arises because the promises of the Lord, they are eternal. They don't expire with time. So, a promise is only as good as the person making the promise. A promise is only as good as the person making the promise. So it's not the words of the promise, but the character of the promise maker that count. So has anyone ever said to you, this is what I'm going to do, I promise. And you went, that is never going to happen. Because you know them. You know them. It's just not going to happen. Mom and dad, I'm going to clean my room unlike it's ever been cleaned before. I promise. All right? Or there are people, you know, that you know when they say, I promise, it's going to be done. It's going it's to be done. Okay? When Witt tells me, hey, I'm going to take you out to lunch sometime, I know that's never going to happen. It ain't going to happen. I'm going to take you out to expensive lunch. Never seen it. Never seen it. Okay? So a promise 
It's not just the words itself, but a promise deals with the, the, the character and intent of the promise maker. So, so Abraham had a promise a long time ago that you, Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be as the sand on the seashore, except there was one problem in that. They could not have a child. They could not have a child. So this promise was given to Abraham, and over time, probably in his mind, he's going, this is not going to happen. It just can't happen. When he got to his 100th birthday celebration, he probably thought, there's no way. Sarah couldn't even make a cake because she's 90 years old. So this, he's probably going, well, I probably missed the Lord. I probably misunderstood. He probably meant, you know, theoretically, spiritually, I would be the father of many nations, you know, because their physical production line had shut down for a long period of time, all right? They did not have a church to go to. They did not have sermons to listen to. But the promise of the Lord still rang in their heart and mind that one day your descendants are going to be, you know, as numerous as the sand is on the shore. It's one Friday night, and they just finished dinner. They're 100 years old, so dinner was done at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay? And all of a sudden, Abraham starts feeling a little different. He's looking at Sarah washing up those dishes, and he's going, that's a fine-looking woman over there. <laughs> she is looking good. And he goes over to help her wash the dishes. And when he put his hands in the dishwasher, there's something attractive about a man that does housework, right? He puts his hands in the dishwater, and she goes, that's a fine-looking man right there. And I mean, they just start looking. She's like, he hadn't looked like that at me in 33 years. What is going on? And then, over the Spotify of that day, Ed Sheeran, the Jewish version, started playing. They decided they needed to take a little walk, so they talked all of their family, hey, we're going to be gone for a little while. They went to the tent on the far side of town, and what happened that day was not a miracle of estrogen or testosterone, but it was the promise of God that was released when he said to Abraham, you are going to be the physical father of, of, of many nations. That was just not theoretical that he meant that. That was a physical promise of God that was carried out in that day. I want to read you this passage, Romans 4.19. Without weakening his faith, this is about this moment. And let me just say, I kind of exaggerated some of that. If you're looking in Genesis for that exact version, 
that's kind of my message version that, that I did. So just want to say that. Without weakening, his, weakening in his faith, without weakening in his faith as he aged, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. The promise depends on the character of the person making the promise. He didn't waver because God had always been faithful. Everything that God had, all, had spoken had come to pass. So even there's a part of this promise that he's not understanding. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Nine months later, we got the slap of behind and we got a baby boy. All right? Because God had carried that promise through. I want to say to you this morning, we're going to, excuse me, we're going to pray this at the end. If God has spoken to you, if God has given you a promise, don't you try to rationalize what that is. Don't try to take it in your own hand like Sarah did that caused a great complication. If you know that story, if God has spoken to you a promise, then you stand, you hold that promise, you be unwavering because that promise is based on the character of God who does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he had the power to speak that promise, he has the power to bring that promise up, up to you. So many years had passed. They'd been in Babylon 70 years. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I mean, they, they, they could be getting discouraged. <clears throat> Circumstances have changed. Hopes have dimmed. But one thing that had not changed was the promise of God had not changed. All of a sudden, even though they are unable to know the, the world politics that is going on at the moment, <clears throat> over in Persia, there is a new king, and his name is Cyrus. And Cyrus does not like what, he's hear, he, what he hears is going on over in Babylon. Cyrus says, you know what? We've got to do something different. Let's go get the armies and let's go to Babylon. And I want to read you 2 Chronicles 36. They're going to put it up on the screen. It's very important. When we talk about a promise, look at this. In the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, watch this, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah self-referencing the promise that was made before. The Lord moved on the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he put a proclamation throughout his realm that said, this is what the king of Persia says. The Lord God, 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of his people among you may go up and may be the Lord their God be with them. So Cyrus, you know, God brings this promise out of nothing. And it's not just that he's a figurehead there. It's in his heart for those exiles to go back and build a temple. Promise done. Promise done. Promise done. Now listen. Now Cyrus, here's how he handles this. When he becomes king over Babylon, he doesn't just open the floodgates for 150,000 people to start trekking 800 miles back to Jerusalem. He sends the people back in three different groups, okay? The first group is Zerubbabel. He sends a group of Zerubbabel to build the temple. We're going to look at that in a moment. The second part, he sends Ezra to restore worship and religious life back to Israel. He does that a little bit later. The third, he sends Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So that's what I'm saying. If you just jump into Nehemiah, you are missing the kind of the fullness of the promise of that, that we see through Ezra. Now, I want to say something to you. When God fulfills a promise, he does not always fulfill it like we think it should be fulfilled, okay? They thought, here comes Cyrus, we're going home. Cyrus goes, not yet. This is not the way we're going to do this. This is not the way we're going to do it. I want to say, God is at work bringing about the promise that he has made for you. Do not tie him to how he should do it or when he should do it. But I want you to know that God is going to fulfill the promise that he made for you. Okay? All right. So, Cyrus allows those who want to go, to, who want to go rebuild the temple to leave Babylon. Okay, so Ezra 1. Ezra 1. All right? In the first year of Cyrus the king, it's almost a quotation of 2 Chronicles, this promise. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, he is tying himself to this prophetic word. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what the king of Persia says. Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Verse 5, And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose heart God moved, prepared to go up and build a house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, so remember, the temple of Solomon, this great and glorious temple, was torn down block by block. It had stood from the time of Solomon for over 400 years. When the Babylonians came in, they tore it up. So for about 70 years, there was no temple. The temple to a Jewish person is the center of religious life. There was no worship. There was no place for Passover, this big celebration. There was nothing that was there. And Cyrus says initially, those of you that want to go back and build the temple, build the temple, he qualifies it that way, then you are welcome to go. He's saying if that moves your heart 
to have the restoration and the physical building of the temple than go. Now, to me, that's an amazing thing that people have lived in Babylon, and I want to talk about that in just a second, for 70 years, but yet there's still this heart and this passion for the temple of the Lord because values, spiritual values, can be lost quickly in one generation. In one generation, okay? In 20 years, they could be lost. And here they are, 70 years, and he says, is there anyone who wants to go and build the temple? And there are thousands of people who want to go and build the temple. Now, I want to take a moment because it's, we, we can't hardly appreciate this remnant until we're just kind of reminded of the life that we live. So let me just back up to life in Babylon for just, just a moment. Then maybe it gives us an appreciation of those who are following this call. Now, as I talk about life in Babylon for just, just a moment, it's probably going to sound familiar to life in America as well. A lot, of, a lot of similarities there. So at the beginning of Daniel, if you remember the story, they got all of the young adults, you know, those showing aptitude for every kind of learning, informed, quick to understand, those qualified for the king's service. They took the young adults. There was an intentional part of grabbing the young adults and taking them to Babylon first. Now, this is the geographical equivalent of going from sweet Tallahassee to Las Vegas, Nevada, okay? That's, that's kind of the way it was. They are taking them to live in Babylon, violent Babylon, sensual Babylon, godless Babylon, morally corrupt Babylon. So that's where when you read Daniel, this is, this is the start of this right here. This is the, what they are going through is the start of this 70 years. So one of the first things they did was to teach new culture and new values. Daniel 1, 4 says they were taught, they taught them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, okay? So they took these young adults, and their first goal was to reshape their values, okay? We don't want uh, this, this dependency on God. We're, you know, this, this religious heritage that they had. So we're going to shift that just a little bit, and we're going to teach them the language and the literature of, of the Babylonians. They wanted to reshape their values, and we see this today in, a, in a, this attempt in young adults when people use the influence of academics and culture to reshape, to reshape values. Their language and literature is our movies, music, social media, and academics, okay? That's the, it's the mutual equivalent. And I want to say to every parent, every young adult, there are people in our world today that want your kids thinking, living, believing, and behaving differently than the values that you've instilled with them and the values of God's Word, okay? Sexuality secularism. There are many places that intentionally use the school curriculum, not just for information, but indoctrination when it comes to family, sexuality, and gender. I say, hey, 
Why don't you leave sexual values to the parents? Why don't you focus on math, history, science, and English? Why don't you do that and leave the rest to parents? And maybe it's a little different, you know, here in our, in our schools, but they, they can't do that because they cannot miss an opportunity of secular indoctrination. It's what they did in Babylon. They're going to teach them the literature and the language of Babylon. If you saw, and I'm not going to go into the full thing, but if you saw what happened at the Los Angeles Dodgers game a few uh, earlier this week when it came to Pride Month? It was one of the most blasphemous, God, you know, godless, you know, Christian hating kind of things that I don't know that I've ever seen done publicly, but that is the life that we are living. They are trying to reshape values through academics and through culture. Andrew Fletcher, and I love this quote. It says, let me make the songs of a nation. I care who not, I, I care not who makes its laws. He's saying there is a great influence to reshape values through culture, and it doesn't matter what your laws are necessarily. It's culture that will reshape values. So they brought them in life in Babylon, you know, uh, to shape uh, uh, culture and values. They gave them a new identity. They changed their names. They changed their names, not just to give the, they gave them Babylonian names, not just not just to have a new name, but this was new identity that they were trying to establish. Our personal identity today is rooted to our family, their last name, our home, our, our moral and spiritual values. But today they are reshaping identity. You hear that word a lot now, identity. Today, Identity is, you know, you, your identity is now your self-expression. It's now your, you know, your sexual beliefs and how you practice, you know, sexuality. That's become the, the framing moment of, you know, of identity. They also, life in Babylon, that gave them challenges to compromise presently held beliefs. One of the first things they did with Daniel was sit down a, a plate of food in front of him that he would have not eaten. It wasn't the Jewish diet. But let's go ahead and start with small compromises. Small compromises lead to big compromises, small temptations, you know. So, so this was the life in Babylon that they, that they had lived in, these young adults, for 70, 70 years, okay? So after 70 years, and I want to say, some of that is very similar to what we're living in now. After 70 years, Cyrus says that there's anybody that's got on their heart that wants to build a temple, I, you're free to go. It would not have been surprising for there to be very few, if any, that wanted to go. All they had lived for decades was this godless, sensual, Babylonian lifestyle. But yet, when he said, if you want to go and build the temple, there were thousands of people, some of them, you know, some of them had been in Babylon since they were young adults, that said, you know what? We believe in that temple, what that temple stands for. 
There are some of those that lived in Babylon. They stayed faithful to God. They stayed faithful to God's word in the midst of a culture that was running the opposite direction. And they left Babylon. They had a mission. They had a passion. They had a purpose. In the midst of that, the Babylonian culture, there were still people and young adults that had a heart for God and stayed pure to God. And I want to say to every young adult here, you are living in modern-day Babylon, okay? You are living with some of the same cultural influences to young adults. Right now, your hand is on the baton with a generation ahead of you. But there will be a day that you will have the baton on your own. And with that same passion, when that same purity, with that same sense of mission, you need to drive the church forward preaching the gospel of Jesus, living in purity and wholeness. Holiness, your time on the spotlight may not be singularly now, but your day is coming when you have to answer the call of Cyrus that says go. It says go. So that first wave goes... And Zerubbabel, he leads the building of the temple. Okay, so they arrive. They make it there, that first wave of people. Ezra 3, Joshua and his fellow priest, Zerubbabel and his associates. And Zerubbabel takes a larger role in this throughout the story. Look at this. They start building the temple. His associates begin to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it and according to the written, written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear around them, they built the altar on its foundation, sacrificed burnt offerings on it, both morning and evening sacrifices. They go to build the temple, but the very first thing they build is the altar. This is an unusual construction sequence here. Normally when you go build, you start with the you know, the, the foundations, you measure it off, you put the foundations in, you start with the walls. Then once you get the walls done, you put the roof, you dry it in. And then once you get it dried in, you know, then you start, you know, furnishing the inside. They did something completely opposite. As they started measuring off, where is this temple going to be? And it was on the footprint of the Temple of Solomon. But they said, we're going to do something first. We're going to start building the altar. Before we do anything else, the very first thing we're going to build is the altar. That's an unusual kind of sequence of, of construction because the altar to them is where it all happened. The altar was central to worship. The altar always represented a place of consecration and worship, acknowledging God's provision. The altar was a place of forgiveness. The altar was a place of thanksgiving. But also throughout Old Testament history, the altar had been the place of encounters with God and the presence of God. And they said, before we need walls, before we need roofs, the very first thing we need is we need to build the altar first. And they started this construction. And they started with that very first, that very first sacrifice. The altars were physical memorials as well of God's presence. Okay, they built the altar 
They built the altar first, and then they built the building. What can we learn from that? The altar's exposed. It's outdoors. They built the altar first, put a foundation in. It should have been the foundation the other places. They built the altar first. What, what can we learn from that? Churches, and I'm going to tell you, our church, we're, we're built on the altar. Now, some places have a physical altar, okay? So we don't have one. We have an altar area, and it, it's the same place. You come. It's your place of meeting with God. It's your place of, you know, confession and thanksgiving and forgiveness. And we call it the altar area. And if you're new, you're probably going, what does that even mean? You know, what, what, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing up there. But they built it first because that was central to everything that they were doing. The altar was the center of that. So using that thinking, okay, if you were building a house using and your and your values, your values now are the room that you build first. What would you build? What what is built first? Is it your office? You know, commerce, money, jobs. Is it your garage? Cars, boats, Toys, hobbies. Is it your media room? Is that what's built? That's what's built first. So, culture, entertainment, the bedroom, the kids' room. And kids are important, but some people have their kids way up on an altar that only God should be able to sit. So, if you're using kind of that same, same thinking, What's being built first in your house? Their value was the altar. I don't care about the other buildings. I want to build the altar. Now listen to me. Because things can happen over a period of time. Priorities can change. Things happen that kind of throw our spiritual life up in the air. And before long, you realize that the altar, the presence of God, the power of God, Jesus is not central to your life anymore. He's just peripheral. He's up on the, he's up on the shelf that you go get him when you need him. And man, there are times that you go, hey, I need to recenter my life. Jesus calls out in Revelation, and it's haunting and he says, come back to your first love because people had moved on to other lovers. And he says, come back, recenter yourself, recenter your faith. They built the altar first. What can we learn from that? And the last part, the last part. They built that temple, it was dedicated. It stood for almost 600 years. The temple that Zerubbabel built was the temple with a few modifications that, G that stood until Jesus' time, until his miracles. So it stood for over 600 years. The last part of this, Ezra. So the first group, the first group is Zerubbabel. They build the temple and complete it. Then Ezra is released in his group. Ezra begins his call to restore worship and religious practice to Israel with personal consecration and prayer, okay? So now Ezra takes his group, all right? Ezra takes his group, but now their focus is not buildings. Their focus is the heart. Their focus is religious practice returning prayer and worship and, and, and all religious practice. So Ezra 7 
Uh, Ezra 7 and 6, verse 6, look at this. Just a reminder. This Ezra came up from Babylon. Just a reminder. Just a reminder. Those in the ministry, those in young adults, you can live in imperfect situations. You can live in godless cultures, but you can still have a heart for God. Just a reminder. This Ezra came out of Babylon. Came out of Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for. The hand of the Lord was upon him. Verse 10, for Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord, teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. In verse nine, and chapter 9 and verse 5, they had a little issue. Look, at, look how Ezra deals with this. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic, cloak, torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord God and prayed. Worship team, you can come. So Ezra begins this public restoration, listen to me, with very private moments with God. Ezra is the priest who lived pure in Babylon, but his call was to lead a reformation in Israel. And what's amazing is once he's released into this moment, this God moment, when when Cyrus says, "You're, you're leading the restoration of religious life, he goes back. He doesn't have a team meeting. He doesn't have a vision meeting. The first thing he does is pray. And he dives into God's word, okay? He, he, he doesn't organize anything initially. He starts with having a heart for God and being devoted to the Lord. Listen to me, young adults, and all of God's call and the plans that he has for your life, it is not about your gifts or your potential. This is about you having a heart that is devoted to the Lord initially, okay? The other stuff will take care of itself in time. But there's a part where every leader, every person that feels the call of God needs to have their face in the carpet, their their eyes upon God's Word, and they're calling out to the Lord. My first first youth pastorate, on Friday nights, they gave me an office. I was so proud. It wasn't really an office. It was the place where they kept the mops and, and, and uh, buckets, and it's where the people who were wet came out after baptism. And it had mildew. You know, it was awful, okay? But not to me. It was like being on Park Avenue because I had an office. But I want to tell you, you know, like my, I was so young. I was in my teens. I didn't know anything about youth ministry. I didn't know anything about the ministry. But on Friday nights, you know, I would go over. I'd just go over to the church, and I did it for months on Friday nights. I just spent my Friday nights just reading God's Word. I could put music on the sound system. I prayed, and I just worshiped, you know. I would read some of my ministry books that would kind of help me prepare for the ministry, but very early even though I had that opportunity of the call very early in my life, devoting myself to prayer and having a heart for God that was very important to me. Let me just say, I didn't know. I was just kind of following my heart. And I want to say this, because what God does through 
me and my call is dependent upon what God is doing in me. Ezra said, hey, I got this big moment. I don't want to blow this moment. So before we gather a team, before we start having services, before we start going full bore in this, I want to seek the Lord. I want to pray. I want to study the scriptures. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what your Enneagram's assessments are or your Myers-Briggs or your talent. It's about the call of God upon your life and what he's doing in your heart. That's the most important thing. The other stuff God will take care of. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I just want to remind you, God doesn't need very talented people to be used for his glory. Okay? And I am your greatest example of that. Okay? So instead of Ezra focusing initially over rebuild all of this rebuilding, he focuses on, on his heart at first. I think that's a good, a good lesson to especially to young adults. Amen. Want the worship team come. I want to I want to give some opportunities for prayer. I want you to stand. We're going to seal this in the altar. In the altar. All right. If you've got a promise that you've been hanging on to, what we're reading about is the fulfillment of a promise that God spoke even before that time. If you've got a promise that you've been holding on to, maybe you're getting a little nervous. Maybe time is ticked away. Circumstances have changed. You know what? God's Word hasn't changed, okay? But this morning, as we sing... I want you to come. I want to pray for those that's standing with the promise. You may go, hey, I'm not. It, it said Abraham was unwavering. I'm wavering. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to pray for strength. We're going to pray that that promise powerfully is going to come about in your life. If you're here today, maybe there are parts of your life that you need to recenter. They built the altar first, the presence of God, the power of God first. Maybe you look at your life and go, man, it's, it's number nine or ten down the road. It's not. It's not for me. I mean, I need to just kind of recenter and refocus my life. Okay? I want you to come to this altar as well. I want you to call out to the Lord. I want you to go, hey, Lord, I got some stuff that's going on. I need to recenter. I need to make you number one in my life. Worship team, would you, would you sing? Would you sing? Thank you, Lord. 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 That's you this morning. These altars are open. You want to stand and have people pray with you about a promise. I want you to come. I want you to come. It's kind of fading. A little concerned about it. I want you to come. We're going to pray with you this morning. There's a part of your life you need to recenter. Things have drawn you away. Your life, your behavior, your thinking. It's not where it should be. You need to recenter your life. I want you to come this morning. I want you to come step out and find a place this morning. People will come pray with you today. People will come and pray with you today. Thank you, Lord. 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 I still believe
this morning. If you have a promise, if you have a promise you want us to stand with you. If you have a promise, if you need to recenter some parts of your life, make some things right with God, come this morning. Come this morning. pray for those and you're holding a promise today. I feel like God's spoken something to you. I feel like there was a passage that just came alive in your heart and the Lord said, believe me for this. So Lord, we stand on the promises of God. Your word says in Corinthians that your word is yes and amen. That there is a certainty to the word of the Lord. There is a stability and a confidence from the word of the Lord because a promise is not just about the words. It's about the character of the promise maker. Lord, you are faithful and you are true. You do not speak amiss. You do not speak carelessly. Lord, today, if that's you, I want you to stand with me. I want you to pray with me. Lord, we stand upon the promises of God today. We stand upon the certainty of God's word. Lord, Abraham did not waver even though he saw the circumstances change and the clock tick. But Lord, I pray for those today who might be a little nervous, a little wavering today. I pray for the faith, Lord, because we're connecting ourselves to the character of God and the word of the Lord. So today, as the people of God, Lord, we confess our confidence in the character and the nature of God. You are good and you do not lie. And God, we stand upon the confidence of God's word that what you spoke, you have the power to bring in to existence today. Lord, we stand upon that word today, that promise that was made, as your word says in Romans, that you have the power to bring about what you've promised. And I pray today, I pray for those that are a little wavering, maybe their faith has been a little shaken, I pray they're going to be like Abraham. They're going to have unwavering faith 
even though there are circumstances they do not believe or understand time is ticked on God you answer your promises in different ways sometimes in different manners than we see but Lord today we stand upon the word of the Lord we stand upon the word of the Lord now I want you to make your own declaration of that promise to the Lord I want you to make your own declaration if you're standing if you're believing I want you to make that make that declaration to the Lord I want you to make that declaration to the Lord God, I trust your promises. I trust your word. I will not be deterred. Circumstances may change, but the word of the Lord never changes. You are the same today, yesterday, and forever. Lord, you never change. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray. I pray for faith to arise. I pray for faith to arise, confidence to arise. When they, for people that are believing that, believing that promise, they're standing on that promise. Lord, I pray, I pray. There's going to be a, the Spirit of God that's going to rise up and go. You're right. Circumstances may not change, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I pray. I pray for faith. I pray for faith in this house. Thank you, Lord. Now, if you're holding to a promise. Right where you're at, I just want you to praise Him and thank Him. You may not see one thing that's moving, but I want you to praise Him and thank Him. I want you to give Him thanks. I want you to give Him thanks as though it's already occurred. I want you to praise Him. 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 I I want to do a couple more prayers this morning. I want to pray for those. Maybe you feel like you just need to recenter some things in your life kind of some priorities have changed things have happened the Lord's not the center the Lord's not first and you know that so Lord I pray for those today some may have come down some may have not and Lord they know that their life is not on the right foundation Lord they're building other parts of their life out with great focus and altar presence of God is not even a a consideration I pray for those prodigals this morning who just feel like they're away Lord people that need to recenter that's you, I want you to pray that prayer. I want you to go, Lord, I got some things out of whack in my life. I need to make you number one. I need to come back to my faith. I need to come back to my first love. I want you to pray that prayer. Lord, I pray, recenter, refocus. Lord, let people come back to their first love. They've been chasing other lovers. Lord, we want them to come back this morning. Lord, I pray. God, you're speaking to people this morning. You're speaking to people. You're speaking to people. Last prayer this morning. I want to pray over every young adult, 35 years of age or younger. Right now, you have your hand on the baton of the church and leadership with another generation. But there is a day that you will have it alone. And I want to pray over you. You are being raised in Babylon. All right? But we see through that story, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. You can live in Babylon and still come out with a heart that's pure and a heart for God. I just want to pray over that this morning. If you're 35 years or age or of under, would you just lift your hands? Let me just pray over you this morning. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these young adults today. And I pray over them, Lord, as they are in the midst of a country and a government and a culture and academics that run counter to the word of the Lord and the, and the, the, the values of the Lord. And I pray. 
I pray over a younger generation today. I pray that there's going to be, Lord, just this heart of devotion, this heart for God. Lord, a a heart that's passionate for the things of God. Lord, Lord, your word and prayer. And Lord, even out of this Babylonian system, Lord, there's going to be young adults that will come out of this generation, this millennial generation, Gen Z, that are going to come out of this church. Lord, they're going to have a passion for God. They're going to have, have the, a, a godly mission and a godly purpose. And you're going to use them in a powerful way. And Lord, this, this world that thinks that they are wearing down all the young adults are going to be surprised at the remnant of the Lord that's going to come out and the power of the Lord that they're going to walk under. God, I pray over them today. I pray, God, that you would do something powerful in our young adults. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, there's a day that the generation in front of them takes their hand off the baton, but we won't be worried in that moment because we're going to be in good hands with young adults whose knees are bowed in devotion to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Raise up those young adults. Raise up those teenagers, those middle schoolers, God. Call them. Call them to yourselves. Oh, God. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just young people, not not necessarily a call. Then there were those that you called, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Either way, it doesn't matter. They're all passionate for God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.